Let's turn our Bibles this morning to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, and we'll be looking at verses 13 through 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. These verses are designed to bolster and encourage our faith in Christ, to enhance our hope and assurance of salvation. In the last verse of the preceding paragraph, the writer, as a way of dissuading his readers from falling away, urged upon them to be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. You see, these professing Christians were faced with a real peril, a real danger, and that was to fall away from the faith. And so prove themselves to be unfruitful and unsaved, as suggested by verses 7 and 8. The writer saw it necessary to urge upon them this responsibility as well to seize the hope set before them, verse 18. And so among other things, they would give credence, they would give evidence of the fact that God had indeed done a saving work in their hearts and lives. And furthermore, this would assure them that God having begun that good work in them would continue to perform it, as the Apostle Paul says, until the day of Jesus Christ. And here in verses 13 through 15, as a way of encouraging his readers, he cites the patriarch Abraham as a model of those who inherited the promises of God by virtue of patience and faith in God. And his selection of Abraham as such is not surprising. Why? Because both Jewish Christians and non-Christian Jews held Abraham in very high esteem. In popular Jewish thinking, Abraham stood out as the consummate model of what it means to have faith in God, to maintain an attitude of patient waiting on God, 
In Romans chapter 4, verse 18, for instance, we are told that in hope he believed against hope that he would become the father of many nations as he had been told. The idea here is this, that in hope he believed against all odds. That is to say, he dared to believe God even when to natural human thinking, his natural human reasoning, what God had promised just did not make sense. It seemed utterly contrary to natural human reasoning. In verses 20 and 21 of Romans chapter 4, go on to state that no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So you can see why the writer chose Abraham as a model that they should imitate. The word of God reveals how that after a during painful process, this painful process of waiting on God, trusting in his promise, Abraham obtained what God had pledged to give him. And if you ask the question, what was the precursor, what was the preceding factor of Abraham's faith and patience toward God with respect to the promises of God, this is where our text begins, and we find that in verse 13. The word of God says, therefore, when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. In scripture, we find further instances in which God, from time to time, would swear by himself. Among those are Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23, in which he swears that to him every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear and confess allegiance. And I would say, my friends, particularly for those of you who are not saved, you need to take careful note of this. You can be absolutely sure of this one thing that you, whether or not you like to think of it, whether or not you like to think that you will do it, you are going to do it. Why? Because God has solemnly pledged his word. He has taken an oath that to him, every knee is going to bow. In Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 5, we find God swearing to Judah how that he would destroy the temple. He would make of it a desolation if they refused to repent. God in Psalm 132 and verse 11 swore to David that he would make his kingdom an everlasting kingdom. We talk about the Davidic covenant. And here in the epistle to the Hebrews, we find three references, three references to the Lord swearing. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 11, which we considered in previous studies, recalls his swearing to those unbelieving Israelites back in the wilderness, how that they would not enter his rest. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 21, God swears concerning his son, the Lord Jesus, how that he would make him a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then in verse 13 of our text, in making a promise to Abraham that he would bless him, that he would make him fruitful, that he would multiply his seed, we see here he takes an oath. The reference of God swearing to Abraham here in our text 
is referring to that occasion when in response to God's directive to offer up his son, Isaac, the son, his only son, the son whom he loved, Abraham ventured to do so, but was immediately stopped by an angel of the Lord. That's what this text in Hebrews is referring to. It's found in Genesis chapter 22. It was at that time that the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven, promising him to bless and multiply his offspring. We see that in Genesis chapter 22, verses 16 through 18. The point of interest here is not simply the fact that God made a promise to Abraham. I mean, that's good. But that he backed up that promise by way of an oath, by swearing. And if that were not impressive enough, God went further in swearing to Abraham to swear by himself, the word of God says, since he could swear by no one greater. This is truly amazing. As the commentator W. Griffith Thomas notes, he says this, this wonderful condescension shows that behind the sanctity of God's word is the sanctity of God himself, an assurance made even superfluously sure. And this swearing to Abraham on God's part, we would say, was truly an act of gracious condescension on God's part. Because really, when we stop to think of it, God has absolutely no need to swear. He is God. He is God Almighty. He is accountable to no one. You see, in affixing an oath to his promise, God was doing what humans typically do. Note verse 16. The writer of the Hebrews says there, rightfully so, for people swear by something greater than themselves that in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. Why are oaths necessary? Why is swearing necessary at times among human beings? Oaths become necessary. Swearing becomes necessary at times because subject as they are to sin, people do lie and break faith with one another. So the act of taking oath, the act of swearing serves, among other things, to impress on the conscience the need to be true and faithful in one's dealings with one's fellow men. The act of swearing serves to settle disputes and to get at the heart of truth. We find, for example, in Genesis chapter 31, verses 43 to 53, that because Jacob and his father-in-law Laban could not trust each other. You remember that account? They covenanted with each other, swearing to each other that they would not do harm to one another. Jacob, of course, implicitly swearing as well to treat Laban's daughters well. And here's the point of this passage. Because God is untouched by sin... God, unlike sinful human beings, have no need to swear he has absolutely no need to take an oath, let alone swearing by himself. 
And why is that so? We read in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. Here's what the word of God says. God is not a man that he should lie. Nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So we see here, this was an act of gracious condescension on God's part, because when God swore to Abraham, when God took an oath to Abraham to confirm his promise, God was doing what human beings typically do. God was actually coming down to Abraham's level to assure Abraham of the surety of his promise. So the question becomes, why did God swear to Abraham as he promised to bless him, as he promised to multiply his offspring? He did so because, you see, he knows very well, he knew very well how prone we are to doubt his word. Reputed as we might be for faith in him, for trust in him as Abraham had been, we, he, he knows how prone we are at times to doubt and to mistrust him. And the fact is, even though Abraham was known for his strong faith in God, even though he was reputedly the father of faith, as indicated by Romans chapter 4, 18 through 21, Hebrews chapter 11, 8 and 9, yet there were occasions when Abraham's faith gave way to doubt, to fear, and mistrust. There were occasions when his faith gave way to fear and mistrust in the providence of God. For example, you remember on two occasions for fear of his life, he denied that Sarah was his wife. We see that in Genesis chapter 12, verse 12. And he did the very same thing later down in Genesis chapter 20 and verse 2. Fear drove him to lie. He feared when he went down to Egypt. He feared when he went down to the Philistines that they would seize his wife. They would kill him. They would take his wife from her. So he concocted a plan with Sarah that if, if asked, she would tell them they were brothers and sisters, brother and sisters. When God promised to give him the land of Canaan, he protested in Genesis chapter 15, verse 8, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? In Genesis chapter 16, verse 4, we see that outside the will of God and an account of distrusting the Lord, he allowed the directive of his wife to totally displace the will and the purpose of God for him, what, he, what happened at the instigation, the suggestion of his wife, Sarah, he went into Hagar so as to produce a child by her. They had been waiting so long, as the saying goes, they decided to help out God. Lack of faith. And so as to why God confirmed the promise he made to Abraham with an oath, he did so, as we said, as an act of grace. He did so as a gesture of condescension to Abraham. For consider the particular circumstances of Abraham, why God would make this promise 
and affixed to this promise an oath when God had first promised him that he would make of him a great nation, having no child at that time. Abraham, according to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 4, was 75 years old. 75. His wife would have been 65 years of age because they were 10 years apart. Since then, all of 24 years had elapsed before he received a further promise from God that he would have a son named Isaac, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1 to verse 19. Because at that time, according to Genesis chapter 17, verse 17, compared with Genesis 21, verse 5, he was 99 years old, his wife, 90 years of age, roughly. Let me say this, you know this very well. That certainly demanded a whole ton, massive amount of faith to trust God. You're talking about from you were 75 years of age, God is telling you that you're going to have a son all of 24 years past. And first of all, at 75 years of age, that was a big challenge to his faith. Let alone 99 years of age, Abram is told that God, God tells Abram, Abram, you're going to have a son. And it, it seems so preposterous. It seems so ridiculous. We are told in chapter 18 that when Sarah heard that promise, she laughed. By the way, that's, that's why the son was named Isaac, because Isaac means laughter. No doubt there are times when it seemed as if God had forgotten his promise. And yet Abraham, Abraham, the word of God tells us, this is what the word of God says, Abraham believed the Lord. Abraham believed the Lord, yes, after waiting, after trusting, after waiting, after trusting, Abraham believed God. And the question is, what was it that enabled him to do so? And in particular, what was it that enabled him to offer up his son Isaac, this son that at this time had been born? What was it that led Abraham to offer up Isaac to the Lord as God had instructed him? What was it that enabled him? What was the impetus? What was the driving force behind his doing what God told him to do? Ridiculous as it seemed. Contrary to God's purposes, as it seemed, we have to go back to verses 13 through 15 of our text. Because there we see that it was an account of God's sworn pledge, his oath to him, even as he promised to bless him. We read, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, here it comes, verse 15. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, we have a little difficulty here because here is what we have to answer. And if you're following very carefully, and if you know the narrative, the whole sequencing of events, you have to ask the question, you must ask the question, how was it that at this point, God was swearing to Abraham how that he would multiply and bless his offspring when by this time, 
Isaac had long been born. This time, Isaac was probably about 18 years of age, a teenager. What was that promise that Abraham obtained? Note that the particular promise Abraham obtained concerned not the birth of his son Isaac, but his recovery of Isaac from being slaughtered on the altar. You see God's promise and oath on that occasion, verse 17 of Genesis chapter 22, was a direct response to Abraham's attempt at sacrificing Isaac, the very son God had promised him. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, chapter 15, verses 4 through 6, chapter 18. The very son that God had promised him, God commanded him to offer as a sacrifice. And right in the midst of his attempt to offer that sacrifice, God said, hold it. And then God swore by himself to bless and multiply him. One commentator explains it like this and how true in the birth and then the rescue of Isaac, Abraham did receive the promised blessing of offspring. And stop there for a moment because you remember what the writer of Hebrews says? From whence he received him, figuratively speaking. Right at that incident, when God said, hold it, Abraham, spare your son, because now I know that you love me. The writer of the Hebrews says, he received him from the dead, figuratively speaking, accounting that God was able to raise him from the dead. So in principle, God swearing to him, the fulfillment of that promise was right there and then, because in principle, in the mind of God, Isaac had been slain and Abraham was able to have Isaac without his being actually killed. That's the promise that he fulfilled, that he, that he received. As the writer goes on to say, nevertheless, he did not see the complete fulfillment of those covenantal promises. That is to say, he did not see the full realization of seeds being multiplied because, of course, he died. And so by swearing to Abraham by himself, God, you see, gave Abraham such double-layered assurance of his promise because he wanted to fortify, he wanted to strengthen Abraham's faith in his word, in his promise. He wanted to encourage him to rest in the fact that what he had promised would surely, most certainly, be fulfilled. And the thought that God goes out of the way to swear regarding the truthfulness, the trustworthiness of his promise, my friends, what a comfort, what a great assurance, a marvelous comfort for those who struggle with the matter of trusting God. And in a very real sense, in a very, very real sense, we could say that in swearing an oath to Abraham, God, by extension, did that for you and me. Why? So as to encourage our fragile and oftentimes failing faith. 
This will be actually made clear in verses 17 and 18, because if you notice verses 17 and 18, in light of God's sworn oath to Abraham, verses 17 and 18 says this, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, what would be the unchangeable things? God himself. And secondly, his word, that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, here comes we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold to the hope set before us. You see what the writer is doing there? The writer is saying here that what God did with respect to Abram, swearing to him, confirming his oath, confirming his promise with an oath, he was in effect doing it for us to encourage us, to strengthen our faith. Who are the heirs of promise that are mentioned in verse 17? Notice what he says there in verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, who are the heirs of his promise? And you're right. If you're thinking that, it is precisely you and I believers in Christ who are referred to in Galatians chapter 3 verse 7 and as well as verse 29 as the sons of Abraham as his offspring. God says the right of the Hebrews in guaranteeing his promise to Abraham with an oath wanted to convincingly demonstrate the fact of his saving purpose for us that it is unchangeable such that having fled for refuge to, into Christ, we might be emboldened, we might be strengthened to be steadfast with regard to the hope that is set before us. This passage then really concerns the matter of the assurance of our salvation. So once again, what God is doing, what the writer is doing, he's setting up his argument. He's showing how are you going to fulfill the promises of God through patience, through faith, as he encouraged those Christians, those professing Christians at the end of the previous paragraph. He says, look at Abraham. Look at how God swore to him and how God in bolstering his faith, God bolstered his faith such that he believed God and he received the promises from God. The writer is suggesting, therefore, let that be seen as to your benefit, because effectively God was doing it for us believers in Christ. So that's a very long introduction. So let me share with you, and I obviously won't be able to finish this sermon this morning. Two matters from this text, two main ideas from this text related to the matter of our assurance of salvation, our assurance of eternal salvation. First of all, let's consider the premise or basis of our assurance. And what is very clear, first of all, from our passage is that the assurance of our salvation is premised on the character of God. The assurance of our salvation is based on the character of God. The first point under this heading, or the first sub-point is this, that God is unchangeable in his ways. Look at verse 17. God is unchangeable 
in his ways. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it, verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things, remember now one of those unchangeable things is God himself, by whom he swore, and also his word. The point we are making here, beloved, why can you and I be assured that God, having saved us, notwithstanding all the trials we go through, notwithstanding all the challenges to our faith, that God has assured that those whom he has saved, those who have fled for refuge in Christ, will most certainly come into everlasting life? And the answer is this based on the character of God, the fact that God is unchanging in his ways. In Christian theology, we speak of the immutability of God. The King James Version has that word. The immutability of God means that God is not subjected to vicissitudes. He's not subjected to ups and downs. He's not subjected to changing his mind. He's not fickle. Once he promises, once he asserts his promise, he will most certainly, most definitely bring it to pass. And one of those promises, as our Lord Jesus says, that all that comes to the Father, he will save and he will keep and none will be able to pluck them out of his hands. Scripture says of him in James chapter 1 verse 17 that he is the father of lights with whom there is no variation nor shadow due to change. Malachi 3 verse 6, for I the Lord do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. God is saying to Israel there, if I were given to fickleness, if I were given to changing my mind, you would have been wiped out entirely. Let me say this, beloved, sometimes people have this concern. What if I lose my salvation? Let me say this. I think it was Spurgeon who suggested this. If you could lose your salvation, if you and I could lose our salvation, we would have lost it a long time ago. We would have lost it from day one. But praise be to God. God, the word of God tells us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul assured the Corinthian Christians, and here was a group of Christians who were most carnal. They were really living contrary to the gospel. And what Paul said to them, Paul said this, God is able to confirm you to the very end so that you might be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, be confident of this very thing that he who hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, by virtue of his omniscience, the fact that he knows everything, by virtue of his omnipotence, the fact that he can do anything but sin, but lie, holy and righteous as he is, God never has to change his will and purpose toward us. Whatever he purposes, he brings to pass, hence his word is sure and steadfast. So when we talk about the assurance of our salvation, the premise of our salvation, number one, the assurance of our salvation, it's premised on the character of God. God is unchanging in his ways. But secondly, with respect to the character of God, not only is God unchanging in his ways, but look at verse 18. God is unfailing in his word. God is unfailing in his word. The word of God says in, in verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. Impossible. 
Impossible. Why? Because that which spells lie and falsehood is totally contrary to the nature and character of God. There's no way that God could lie and yet be true to his holy and righteous nature. Has he not said and will he not perform? You see, the God who promises is himself the epitome of truth. That is why his word must surely be fulfilled. He himself is the epitome of truth. That was why our Lord Jesus could assert in John 14, verse 6. He says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I am the truth. And this explains why in his message to the church at Laodicea, he could address himself, he could introduce himself to this church as the amen, the faithful and true witness. That is why the Apostle Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 19 and 20, here's what the Apostle Paul says, lauding and celebrating the truthfulness of God in Christ. He says this, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim to you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And what this therefore means is that God makes good all of his promises. But of all people, Abraham knew that in a first-hand manner. That is why we read in Titus chapter 1 verse 2 when it comes to our salvation, the assurance of our salvation. Here's what the word of God explicitly affirms in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word. Well, we have to stop here this morning, but let me say this. What a wonderful passage we have here. What a sweet passage. That's a word I rarely use. Limited ways, yeah, of course. But what I would say of this passage, this passage is a most sweet and comforting passage. Why? Because it celebrates the fact that the God who saved us will indeed bring to pass his saving purposes, bring to completion his saving purposes, Toward us. Why? Because he's unchangeable in his ways and because he is unfailing in his word. That is why we can read in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 These things have I written unto you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you might believe on the name of the Son of God. You say this morning, how can I be sure that I am really saved? Well, to begin with, here's the question. Have you called on him to save you? Have you truly called on him to save you? Have you come to that place where you recognize yourself, know yourself to be a sinner in need of a savior? Do you recognize that Christ alone is the way of salvation? And have you called on him? The word of God says that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That promise holds true. It was true in Paul's day. It is true even now. The question is, won't you trust him who 
himself is trustworthy. May God grant that these things be so for his name's sake. Amen.